You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Great to have all of you here this morning. And I hope it's not because you took a wrong turn and somehow ended up here. By the way, have you ever taken a wrong turn when you've been out driving or on a trip? Well, there is a wrong turn that I made that I will never, ever forget. It was many, many years ago. It was the first time I had been able to to fly back east. At that point, it was the furthest I'd ever traveled across the country. I went to a conference a student ministry conference back when I was working with middle school students at my last church in Chicago. And so we landed in Chicago, and I'd never been in a city that big. I mean, it's just huge. You think Portland's big. And it's just a massive city. And the downtown area is, much of it is a one-way grid, you know, like Gresham, like parts of Portland, what have you. And so we went to go explore downtown before we had to be at the next um, portion of this conference. So we went down midday and our plan was we would get in and out of Dodge before rush hour traffic hit. Well, that didn't work quite so good. And so we're in downtown Chicago and some of you were gonna say, man, how old is this guy? But this was before GPS, before maps on your phone, before Google, before Siri, before all that stuff. You just had a paper map. We called it a Thomas guide. If you go to a museum, you might see one. (laughs) And that's the only way we had to navigate Chicago. And so I'm driving this rented minivan with, you know, my partners in crime in back who were greatly encouraging, go here, turn here, turn here. I'm driving. And so we're trying to find our way out of downtown Chicago and we turned onto one of those one-way streets the wrong way. And so one light away was all of Chicago waiting for the light to turn green in these cars, and we're headed down towards them. And if we go to the next street, we won't be able to turn onto it before they get to us. So we had a split-second decision to make. I can tell you with great certainty, you've never seen anyone pull an illegal U-turn so fast in the middle of a street in the middle of a city like Chicago. So we turned around and went the other way, but total wrong turn and great fear because of what was about to happen. In the story, one of the stories we will look at today, Jesus is going to take the disciples somewhere that they do not want to go, and it's going to feel like a wrong turn. But where he's taking them, by design, is very deliberate, because he is demonstrating his kingdom, and he is demonstrating his power. In fact, one of the common denominators that runs through these final four stories of Luke chapter chapter eight is the emphasis on Jesus's power. You'll see his power over disaster, his power over demons, his power over disease, his power over death. All that is on display. And what you'll also see as a common denominator in these four stories is this constant interplay between faith and fear. You see them put up against one another throughout these these stories. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all four stories here this morning. We're gonna go after the first two. So I, I hope that what we cover this morning encourages you, motivates you, gives you incentive to go back and read these other two stories that we're not gonna have time to look at. That the healing of a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years 
and she's healed just by touching Jesus and the raising from the dead of the synagogue ruler's daughter. I mean, they're just, they're amazing stories and I hope you'll get to those on your own later this week. But we're gonna start with this first story where Jesus shows and demonstrates his power over disaster. And please understand, in each of these stories, they are entirely impossible situations. They're absolutely impossible without the power of God. So that being said, little, little background here for you, context for this story. If you're like me, you're a visual person, not all of you are, but I am, and this always helps me. If you're thinking of the Sea of Galilee, our story now is gonna take place where Jesus and the disciples are gonna cross from Capernaum to Gergasa. And it's named various things depending on where you lived around the lake, but this is Gentile territory. The Jews don't live on this part of the lake where Jesus is about to take the disciples. Also, they're going across the lake in something very similar to this. This is a picture taken from my phone when we were in Israel. In the 1960s, there was a severe drought in the whole area, and the Sea of Galilee dropped to a level that in modern history they had never seen before. And when it did that, it exposed this boat that had been preserved in the mud. And so they through a lot of innovative means, were able to encase it in foam and and pull it up out of the mud without destroying it. And they literally built a museum right where they found it in order to preserve it. And so there's this museum where you can go see this boat. But here's what's significant about this boat. Experts agree it dates all the way back to the first century. This boat is over 2,000 years old. In fact, it's referred to as the Jesus boat because it was found during that time in history. Now, did Jesus actually use this boat? Probably not so much. But it does give us an idea of what kind of a boat they were in when they began to cross the Sea of Galilee, and this is a replica of what it looks like. Not a real big boat. You think of the 12 disciples and Jesus being in there, that's not a very big boat. This is something else that you need to know and appreciate about the Sea of Galilee, is that it is the largest body of freshwater in the lowest elevation in the world. Let me say that a little more clearly. So of all the bodies of water that sit below sea level, it is the largest that sits the furthest below sea level. So you have the desert mountains on one side and you have the, the Mediterranean coast on the other side and the cool air and warm air collide right at the Sea of Galilee. And so that's why you can have these incredibly ferocious, amazing storms. So with that as context, Here is our first story. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So again, we know from reading the preceding chapters and from the other gospels, because this story is captured in three of the four gospels. Some think it's also captured in the gospel of John. All that being said, it had been a long, long day of ministry Jesus is healing people, teaching, being with people all day. They're exhausted, and so they begin to go across the lake, and understandably, he falls asleep. But this is an incredibly quick, 
and violent storm like we talked about can happen on the Sea of Galilee. You ever been out on the water in a boat in the middle of a storm? I have. Many years ago, my brother-in-law invited me to go with some of his friends to go salmon fishing, and we went way out on the buoy line outside the, the Columbia Bar, and we saw a storm coming in. And the water began to get rougher. And our, the guy who skippered our boat, which, by the way, was just a little ski boat, said, yeah, I think it's time for us to head on in. Yeah, we agree. So we started to head on in, and the, the winds picked up, the waves picked up, and the engine was firewalled. He had the throttle all the way down, and we weren't going real fast. And we thought, oh, boy, how's this going to work out? And it was scary. And I read in the papers the next day, and a paper is something you can go see in a museum as well later this week, but it read in the paper the next day that there was another boat far larger than ours that had capsized that same day because they did not come in and everybody was lost before the Coast Guard could get to them. There is nothing scarier than being in the middle of a storm out on the open water. You are completely out of control. And what we need to remind ourselves is that the majority of the disciples had grown up on the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen by trade. These were professional sailors. How bad do you think that storm was for them to be afraid? I mean, this was a mega, monster, huge, scary storm, and Jesus is sleeping. And so... In fear of their lives, they wake him up, and this is how he responds. Where, where is your faith? And what helps us even better understand Jesus' response is Luke is not emphasizing the things that Mark is. Luke is really emphasizing Jesus' power. Mark gives us a little more detail, and I think this is key to helping us understand this, and this is very relevant for you and me. In Mark's account, when they wake him up, they say, don't you care that we're about to drown? And by doing that, they're questioning his goodness. Should they have gone to Jesus? Absolutely. Should they have woken him up? Absolutely. Was Jesus being cranky because his nap got interrupted? No. He actually wasn't. It was because they were accusing him, in Mark's account in particular, of not trusting him. And what is one of Satan's favorite tactics to go after you and me in our relationship with God. For those of us who know him and love him, he will question and cause you to question God's goodness. It worked with Adam and Eve, and if we let it, it will work with us. God's not good. Did he really say that? Did he really promise that? He doesn't really care about you. How could this be happening? You see where this goes. And so Jesus rebukes this storm. He tells it to stop, and it's, incredibly calm and they say who is this they're absolutely amazed and understandably so but they're about to find out exactly who this is because we're about to see another demonstration of God's power in a different way in another story and as we do so a couple disclosures here this is a very familiar passage to many of you this next one and this is where Jesus will confront a man who is demonized. Now, anytime we talk about spiritual warfare, anytime we talk about Satan like I just did, anytime we talk about demons, there's usually some extremes that people can gravitate to at times. There's this extreme that says, seriously, demons, Satan, spiritual warfare, really? Okay, that's right up there with the boogeyman. 
the Loch Ness Monster, the Abominable Snowman, and Bigfoot. Now, we're good Northwesterners. Bigfoot's real, but the rest aren't. And you really believe, you really believe in saying, I mean, seriously, this is, this is how it gets treated. In our scientific naturalistic bent, we, we are conditioned, especially as Westerners, to think, well, if I can't test it, if I can't hypothesize it, if I can't verify it, no. That's for primitive people. That's for uneducated people. That's for superstitious people. But the other extreme we can go to is the very polar opposite where, oh yeah, we, we buy into the spirit world. In fact, Satan is behind everything you do. All the brokenness in your life, all your sin, all your selfishness, that's due to Satan. And Satan's under every bush, every rock, behind every car, behind every motive, behind every action. No, that, that's not true either. The reality is Satan is real. Demons are real. Spiritual warfare is real. We are in the middle of a spiritual war that is constantly raging all around us. Sometimes we see it. Many times we don't. But the bottom line is, it is a reality. And understandably, you have questions about that. I have questions about that. And we are not going to go into this next passage and look at it in terms of developing a theology of demonization and deliverance. However, we do have a position paper that our Gary Brashears has written that describes some of the more specifics of, okay, what is this really all about? What does this look like? You're welcome to grab that on the resource table in the back, but we're looking at the bigger picture here of how do people respond to Jesus's power? And I want you to watch for this as I read this next story to you. How do the demons respond? How does the crowd respond? How does the man respond? How do the disciples respond? Let's look at this together. So they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which, by the way, was not a wrong turn. This is delivered on Jesus' part, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. And for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off, and they reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the, the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. Some of the saddest words, I think, in all the Bible. They asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat, and he left. And this is the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. 
So it says they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes. And again, this must have felt like a wrong turn to the disciples because no self-respecting Jew would go to this part of the Sea of Galilee. It was an unclean place populated by unclean people who ate unclean animals, who did unclean things. And by the way, this man is the epitome of unclean. He's possessed by unclean spirits and he lives in a cemetery. He lives in the tombs. This, this looks and seems like a disaster. And really, between you and me, this is the wrong side of the tracks. No one wants to go there. No self-respecting Jew, at least, wants to go there. And this is a picture from my phone, and you probably can't see it real well, and there's not a lot of detail there, but to this day, there is not much on that side of the Sea of Galilee. It's barren, it's desolate. You wouldn't want to go there. You certainly wouldn't want to live there. And that's where Jesus goes. And I think one of the first realities that we continue to see in this story is that Jesus is the God of all people. Luke emphasizes this reality over and over again. That's why we titled this series, The Gospel for All People, because it is. By way of practical application, what this means is we go wherever there's broken people. And where are there broken people? Apart from Jesus? Everywhere. So where is that line for you? Where is that place? Who is that person you do not want to go to? Who you don't want to tell about Christ because for whatever reason, and there could be many, you just, you just don't want to have a hand in that. But what Jesus continues to show us and emphasize is that he didn't come for the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, like he said in chapter two. And something that we as a church, not necessarily us, but the church capital C, but us at times probably fairly too, have struggled with, is we misconstrue and we misunderstand what Jesus said. What Jesus was trying to teach the Pharisees was this, we separate ourselves from sin, not from sinners. Meaning anybody should be welcome in this community to hear about Jesus, to come in all their brokenness so they can be freed from that. And we as a church, capital C, haven't always done that well. And one of the many ironies in this passage is the disciples are saying, who in the world is this? And did you notice something? Did the demons know who Jesus was? Unequivocally, unquestionably, unhesitatingly. And that's one of the ironies Luke is bringing out here, is here is the crowd, here are the disciples. People are trying to figure out who Jesus is. The demons know exactly who he is. And that's really the starting point for faith. Matt helped us see this so clearly last week. And if you haven't had a chance to hear his excellent sermon, please go back and listen to that. But faith starts with listening and hearing. How we listen matters. It determines the receptivity and condition of our heart. And this will continue to culminate in Luke chapter 9, which we'll get to this section in just a couple weeks, where Jesus will deliberately ask the disciples when they're alone, who do the crowd say I am? Oh, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say another one of the prophets who's come back to life. But then he says, who do you say I am 
And that is the question for them and for you and, and for me. Who do we say he is? Because how you listen will really determine how you will live. Or to put it another way, by looking at your life and mine, we can tell who Jesus is to us. If he is your Lord and Savior, then you will love him, you will be loyal to him, you will live for him. If he is the divine life coach or the divine advice giver or a good example or a really moral teacher, you're gonna pick and choose when it comes to trusting and obeying him. The litmus test for this is, is how you live your life. You know, James in the New Testament is real clear on this. James 2.22, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. Jesus himself said earlier, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If you love me, you will trust and obey me. By way of example, what are you lenting from for those of you who are doing that right now? And Lent is just a formal season of fasting. Fasting is a spiritual tool for developing intimacy with Jesus that you can apply any time of the year, but this is a season when Christians all over the world are choosing to, to fast through Lent. So how are you doing with that, if you're doing that? I've chosen to fast from anxiety because I realize that it's been a battleground in my life for a long time, and I've, and I've done battle with this before, but for me, the expression of this is my fingernails. I have chewed my nails ever since I was a little kid out of anxiety. I mean, I do it without even thinking about it. In fact, you can, please don't do this, but you could come up to me on any given week and say, let me see your nails because then I'll know what kind of a sermon week it's been for you as you're getting ready because I find myself chewing my nails when I'm doing my sermon and preparing it. And it's crazy. But the nails aren't the issue. The anxiety in my heart is the issue. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and petition, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do I believe it? I do. I do believe that. So I want to live it. Being in the fight, being in process, absolutely matters. That, that is a fruit of, of spiritual growth. So who is Jesus to you? But in our story, we see that the demons, they know who Jesus is. They beg for permission to not be sent into the abyss, but to go into the pigs, which is something we could spend a whole lot of time on that we just don't have time to do. But all these pigs go down in the water and drown. Now, we have to appreciate this. This was someone's economic livelihood, maybe several someone's economic livelihood. I mean, consider it like this. Let's say you owned a car dealership. All these new cars. Jesus shows up. He heals this demonized guy, and all these demons go into your cars, and they crash. I mean, the whole fleet is destroyed. Would that be upsetting to you? Well, of course it would. So in part, we can understand why this crowd is so upset and why they're afraid, but we're told what the true source of their fear was. Here it is. They find the man sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What were they afraid of? The transformation in this man's life. They were afraid of Jesus' power. Are you? 
And understandably, there's, there's a lot here. On one hand, we are told, and we should fear God and his power. Proverbs talks a lot about this, but scripture talks all about this. He's God. But this is a fear of respect and reverence. It is a fear sourced in relationship. Yeah, that he's God and we're not, but we still love him and respect him. And ironically, counterintuitively, he wants us to draw near to him, draw near to his power, experience his power, live out his power, versus being afraid of his power and not wanting anything to do with him. Not, not wanting any relationship with him. I'm just scared. I don't know that I can trust you, so I'm not going to let you in. That's the fear that's being demonstrated by this crowd. So how do you respond to his power? And I would venture in a gathering of this many of us, there are some of you who, if you're honest with yourself, you fear his power in that you aren't sure you want a lot to do with it. I mean, this Holy Spirit living inside you stuff is a little weird. Not quite sure what to do with that. Not sure how to respond to that. And some of you rightfully have seen things attributed to God's power that just aren't. Where his power is abused in the sense that there's goofy, crazy, silly things and people say, oh yeah, that's, that's a spiritual gift. Or that's, and so you react. And you say, I want nothing to do with that. But there is a power that God wants you to experience and have in your life, his, his power. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity. And another way that can also be translated is, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. God wants you to experience his power for transformation in your life and it starts with making him the object, the source, the focus of your faith. That's what happens to this demonized man. He's delivered, he's freed, he has a new foundation, he has a new direction in his life. Can you imagine the story that he now has? And what does Jesus tell him to do? He wants to be with Jesus. Absolutely good, absolutely right, but Jesus says, go tell everybody else about what I've done for you. And here's the reality. If you have received Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, you have a story of deliverance to tell. Because I've talked to a number of you who, it seems like you've always known Jesus, and we all understand, and I've Certainly, from Scripture, especially, we may not understand it, but Scripture declares that you don't just kind of absorb your way into the kingdom of God. You enter it. It is a defining moment where you choose to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You not, may not be able to remember when or the exact date, but there is a certainty that you need to have, that you have received him into your life. But once you have, man, your life begins to change and you have a story to tell. Our culture loves to tell their story. Have you ever heard of social media? What happens on social media? Now, anyone with an internet connection has a platform by which to tell their story, and they do. But you know what's so interesting and so ironic? We are more interconnected via the internet and, and this incredible day and age that we live in, and we are more disconnected than we've ever been. Do you know what survey after survey and poll after poll shows? People are starving for real relationship. 
not virtual ones. It's rampant. Over and over again, people are looking for someone to have a relationship with, to be in community with. Virtual community has its place, but it's not the place that we, we need to be. And so the reality is everybody has a story to tell and they're starved for relationship. Let me give you an, a, a, an example recently that I heard of really how this works. There's this one lady who I know who loves Jesus and she's in a season of her life where she has some discretionary time that kids are raised and you know she's in that next season of life. And her ministry is she runs into younger women at the store, at the bank, at the gym, all these places she goes and she'll just deliberately just strike up conversation with them and just begin to talk to them and, and they want to tell their story because many of them have no one to talk to so she'll say and she told me I have yet to be turned down just after some initial conversation I'll offer hey you want to go out for coffee let me just buy you some coffee love to hear your story they all say yes they all get to tell their story but there's even deeper blessing and opportunity in that and this is not manipulative and this isn't a scheme or a tactic but Invariably, if you hear someone's story, you will probably get the chance at some point to tell yours. It happened to me last night. I was at a scholarship dinner for our daughter, and I was sitting next to someone I didn't know, and just a couple questions, and we were off to the races, and he was telling me a story, and then he turned and said, well, what's your story? And I got to tell him some of mine. You have a story to tell. If you know Jesus, you really have a story of deliverance to tell, and it needs to be told. And some of you might think, well, I'm not quite sure what that is or I'm not quite sure how to do that. Well, what's he delivered you from? Where would your life be without him? I got to look at this into my own life many, many years ago. I've never forgotten it. I was away at college. Some of you know my story. I'd moved from Springfield, Oregon up to here and um, had left behind a bunch of friends and community guys I'd grown up with middle school, early high school, lost contact with all of them, but here this one guy who was in my circle of friends shows up at my college like five, six years later, and I said, oh, Gary, tell me what's going on. Caught up with his story, and then he began to go down the list and tell me the story of all my friends I'd hung out with and where their lives were, and to a person, their lives were either train wrecks or they were just absolutely directionless. Every single one of them. And I could give you specifics and we don't have time, but I can tell you this, I've shared with you that I, in my brokenness, can default to people-pleasing. And if I would have stayed in that community, apart from Jesus, I probably would have ended up right where they were because that's what they were doing, and that was my community. God gave me a look, a glimpse at what he had delivered me from. I have a deliverance story, and so do you, and it needs to be told so as our worship choir comes forward and as we continue to respond to God's word, I want to give you a couple practical pieces here. Here's the first. Easter is in the windshield. It is right around the corner. And some of you may be wrestling with this and telling yourself, I don't know that I'm comfortable telling my Jesus story to someone else. Okay, well, can you invite someone to church then? Can you take one of our invitation cards and be intentional about inviting someone here who doesn't know Jesus? Because I can tell you what we're going to talk about. It's what we talk about every Easter. It's what we talk about every Christmas. It's what we talk about every Sunday here. We're going to talk about Jesus. And we're not going to force him down anyone's throats. 
but we are gonna tell the incredible life-changing story of what it means to know and love him as your Lord and Savior. You see, the second piece is this. You do have a story to tell, even if you think you don't. That's not the question. The question isn't, do I have a deliverance story to tell? The question is, will you tell it? Because he's freed you. He has broken the chains of brokenness, of selfishness, of self-focus, of self-absorption that were where you were before you knew him. And so we're gonna sing and celebrate that together, a God who breaks the chains and sets us free and gives us a deliverance story. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.